0: Welcome to Democracy, the podcast that shines light on some of the darkest challenges facing the fight for democracy around the globe. Brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening, in partnership and funding from our friends at the United States Agency for International Development through the Democratic Elections Political Processes Cooperative Agreement. I'm your host, Adrian Ross. As we drop the final episode in the Defending Democracy Ukraine series, we also mark one full year to the day since Russia shocked the world with their full-scale attack on Ukraine. While the future for both nations remains unclear, we do know Ukrainians are defending democracy in ways many never thought possible. You've heard some of the best examples throughout this series. I hope you'll listen to all four episodes and share your feedback In the comments section of this podcast ahead the future of ukraine we take a hard look at several crucial elements ukraine must overcome to achieve victory that is not only to beat the russians but to succeed in true democratic transformation first hear from a legal expert who has her finger on the future of free and fair elections Then, a member of President Zelensky's cabinet has been working around the clock, often from an underground bunker. He'll tell you about Ukraine's second war, the battle on corruption. Plus, demand for accountability of Russia's war crimes remains intense. The Nobel laureate driven to bring justice to these victims joins me for one of the most moving interviews you'll hear in this series. But first, let's look at what the future of Ukraine holds.
1: For more than 16 years, with funding from USAID, CEPS has supported institutions that have allowed Ukrainians to create a society free of autocracy, tyranny, and repression. In truth, Ukrainians' governing institutions have proven so stable, they continue to function effectively, even with Russia's onslaught. Meanwhile, The United States Secretary of State says he has determined that members of Russia's armed forces and other officials have committed, quote, crimes against humanity in Ukraine, a term reserved for what the secretary calls the most egregious of crimes. Inside Russia, there is growing evidence that the Kremlin is expanding its crackdown on independent civil society and media. A Russian court recently ruled to shut down the country's oldest human rights organization, the Moscow-Helsinki Group. Also, rising are the estimates of what it will take to rebuild Ukraine. According to the World Bank, European Commission, and the Ukrainian government, costs will likely exceed $349 billion. Despite these facts, Ukrainians remain courageous and relentlessly optimistic. In a nationwide survey conducted by one of the consortium's core partners, the International Republican Institute, 95% of Ukrainians see their country's future as promising.
0: Alyssa Shyshenko agrees. She says there's huge hope for Ukraine. Alyssa is the senior legal advisor for the International Foundation for Electoral Systems. She is dedicated to seeing Ukraine prevail and on the consortium's election front, she has proven to be a formidable partner. Alyssa was forced to flee Kiev in the earliest days of Russia's invasion, but no matter where she went, she never stopped thinking about the future of Ukraine.
2: Uh, one day, the rocket just flew in front of my son's apartment, in my son's uh, room. Uh, It was the rocket that hit the TV tower. It killed at least five people with more people injured. Another day, there was shelling, a real fight right on the neighboring streets, which is one of the biggest avenues of Kiev. Uh, We live on a high floor and unfortunately, we saw everything. That was actually the night when we thought that this is the end. They are here. And thanks God, in that particular situation, they were defeated. So, we stayed at home in Kiev for more than a week. Then we took a chance and we left the city by the last highway, which remained intact because the rest escape routes were just either destroyed or they allowed to the occupied in parts of the region. We stayed for some time in a rural area uh, and then we just decided to depart. I drove out of country together with my son, uh, with other familiar women and their kids as well. So I and my son, we have stayed uh, in Italy for almost five months. Uh, a very kind family hosted us. Uh, although we were, of course, in safety, but my husband and my the rest of my family, they stayed in Ukraine.
0: And I understand you came back at your first opportunity.
2: We came back, right? And it was in August, uh, but I kept kept on working even in Italy, and it was quite an intensive time. And uh, we are working on a number of policy issues and legal reform, cooperating with our partners uh, from parliament, from civil society, from Central Electoral Commission. Uh, of course, uh, happy to be back, but yeah, now uh, also we are suffering from other. Uh, Issues related to war, recent air attacks on Kiev, and uh, energy blackouts, uh, which happen every day uh, in all uh, districts of of the city.
0: Let's go back and talk a little bit about post-war elections in Ukraine. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how you've laid out that work, and how do you even start to do something like that when your country's at war?
2: This is just the right time now uh to think about it, because when the war will will be over, there will be just no time for that because we will need to think about practical stuff. Now we have all opportunities just together uh, together with the partners uh, to involve civil society, central electoral commission, international partners. We discuss the problems which are at hand. We discuss what to do with the millions of Ukrainians who are displaced. Some of them are displaced within the country. Some of them are still out of country. So there will be uh, lots of challenges related to organization of out-of-country voting, uh, how to organize it, uh, how to find ways to, to open maybe more polling stations or to consider alternative types of elections.
0: When you're doing this work, Alyssa, do you feel like there's a lot of hope for Ukraine?
2: There has been a uh, huge hope for Ukraine. And we realize that Ukraine now is uh, actually setting an example for the whole democratic world and even those who are not yeah, democratic because uh, Ukraine is managing quite well in military parts, so there are successes on the front. At the same time, there are truly uh, efforts to keep on and to progress in democracy fields.
0: Before the war broke out, President Zelensky had made campaign promises to put a new referendum law in place. Can you talk a little bit more about this law and why it's especially important to Ukrainian democracy right now?
2: It was actually uh, election promise number one made by uh, President Zelensky in his election campaign. He promised to give people more influence over the national policies. And finally, it was adopted in early 2021. The previous law was uh, originated uh, back by the ex-president Viktor Yanukovych, uh, it, create, it created possibilities to bypass Ukrainian Parliament in decision-making, so it was largely unconstitutional, and finally it ended up in the Constitutional Court. The process on the, when the draft law referendum was being developed, it was fully inclusive. There was engagement of all leading experts in this field, uh, civil society organizations, public authorities, international partners. And IFES has been playing also a crucial part. And also the Venice Commission, uh, which is very important, it assessed the draft law and said that it was largely compliant with international standards. This is uh, truly important for Ukraine to have the laws in the sphere of democracy be truly uh, compliant with uh, with the basic international standards. This is uh, really good that now Ukraine has this. And we can only hope that it will be implemented for the benefit of Ukraine and only on truly important for the whole state issues and only when the martial law is lifted.
0: Why can't you hold a referendum when this is in place?
2: The martial law actually it imposes severe limitations on a number of things in the country, in the states, including on constitutional rights and freedoms, but it must be always listed explicitly what exactly is limited. Uh, And uh, in part of referendum and elections, it is just not allowed. It is directly forbidden to hold referendum and elections in the case of martial law.
0: What does that look like on a day-to-day basis?
2: In my life in particular, it is mostly about curfew time because we are not allowed to go out on streets after 11 and till 5 a.m. We don't have any gatherings now like Assemblies, uh, it is just not allowed to be held in this context. It is just not possible to ensure a number of issues while there is a war for elections. There is so, so many things which have to be done. Uh, there is a political competition which is also now being limited because we have a marathon in media which uh, several TV channels are united and they're streaming the same line. There is a number of issues related to ensuring uh, security, uh, safety, how to do this uh, when. There are just sirens every day, sometimes two, three times a day. When uh, when a siren, you need to go to shelter and all the entities, they are required to close their doors to the visitors. So it is just not possible to organize. I mean, this goes on top of the pure limitation, which is in the laws and in the Constitution, which says that no elections can be held.
0: Can you talk a little bit big picture what do you think of Ukraine's peace negotiations and why has the referendum law been so important to those talks?
2: Right. This is a very good question. Uh, the, uh It was referred to the law uh, on referendum and possibilities to have referendum on peace deal. And when there were some hopes for the Istanbul negotiations and there was a hope of the Ukrainian uh, authorities that there might be some grounds where the peace deal can be reached. But at that time, the law, which is already in place, it was referred to because now Ukraine has a legal basis for holding a referendum. At the same time, now it seems off the table because President Zelensky clearly said if Russia organizes uh, the sham event called fake referendum, then there will be no chance to hold peace uh, negotiations at all. There is no way that we can find a common ground because uh, there is no case that Ukraine can concede its territories because it's first and foremost, uh, it it will never be uh, allowed by the people of Ukraine. And uh, it is directly forbidden by the constitution. There can't be any concessions of the territory of Ukraine even in case if referendum is held on this on this issue it is just
0: unconstitutional
2: and it, it is not acceptable for the ukrainian people
0: what do your neighbors say about that
2: I cannot say for all Ukrainians, but predominantly the ordinary Ukrainian would say, we believe in the armed forces of Ukraine. And this is the only tool which will allow to end this war. And this is the thought which I think most of most of Ukrainians would sign up to, because there can't be any negotiations with the country which simply lies on everything, and there can't be any trust in any peace deal, even in case if uh, any peace deal hypothetically is signed, there is no guarantee that they would not violate it again, because there is no international law for them, unfortunately.
0: In September, the de facto authorities in the four regions that are now occupied in eastern Ukraine were given a so-called referendum by Russia. Do you want to explain a little bit about what happened? And what kind of authority does Ukrainian law have over these circumstances?
2: What happened is just a logistical military exercise. This is not even a fake referendum. We cannot even call it like that because from international perspective, from the Ukrainian perspective, this has nothing to do with the law. It is fully illegitimate and illegal. Talking about the Ukrainian law and who is administrating this, in peaceful condition, any referendum could be administered by the Central Electoral Commission. There can't be any, even in case of peaceful time, even in case of having this legal framework and local referendum, a co- referendum on concessions of the territories are not possible and they cannot be even initiated because they will end up in the constitutional court and they will can- be considered null and void. What they call referendum has nothing to do with this, with this name, with this title even, but this is just a military exercise.
0: Well, in a military exercise in which we saw people going door to door with ballot boxes, right?
2: There was a a set of violations. I would say probably all principles of uh, free and fair elections were violated because uh, there was no secrecy of vote, in short. There was no freedom of opinion, in short. And uh, of course, there was no one in the position to organize this referendum because the only Authority, which is authorized to do this, is the Central Electoral Commission of Ukraine.
0: Do you worry about something like that happening closer to home in Kyiv?
2: Yes, it would be. uh, It would be terrible. It would happen. But uh, at the same time, we realized uh, when we saw that uh, Russians were trying to occupy Kyiv for months and then just left. Because there is no way that the army would concede the capital or, I mean, the, this part of Ukraine.
0: As you work towards free and fair elections, Alyssa, in your mind, is there a time frame? When do you think that Ukraine might be able to hold elections?
2: We have constitutionally mandated term for holding elections for the parliament next year, in October 2023. According to the constitution, this will be an expiration of the current convocation. At the same time, in case of martial law is extended, there is no way to hold them. So they will overstay and they will continue their tenure till the time when martial law is lifted. We just want to people of the whole world to understand that it was the Russian Federation who invaded and they must be held liable. And there must be all efforts throughout the whole world garnered to to bring them to justice and to help Ukraine with all the available means just to stop this war.
0: Alyssa Shoshenko, thank you so much for your time today. Oleksandra Matvichak leads Kyiv's Center for Civil Liberties. It's the first organization to ever win the Nobel Peace Prize in Ukraine. In 2022, Oleksandra traveled to Norway to accept the award on behalf of the team. Together, they've spent the past eight years documenting thousands of Russian war crimes. I'll warn you, this is an emotional subject, and parts of what Oleksandra describes are hard to hear. Her work comes at a great personal cost. But as you'll witness, she's determined to get justice for the victims of this war. Putin tried to convince the whole world that rule of law, democracy, and
3: human rights are fake values because they couldn't protect you during the war. In order to respond to this value dimension, we have to demonstrate justice. And this is a huge challenge because we face with enormous amount of war crimes. And now we have a accountability gap where national system is unable to cope with such enormous amount of crimes, and the International Criminal Court will limit its investigation only to several select cases. That's why we need additional international mechanism, like International Tribunal, to hold Putin, Lukashenko, and other world
0: criminals accountable. What does justice look like for these victims?
3: They need to restore not only their broken lives, broken visions of the future, but they need to restore their beliefs that rule of law exists and justice is possible, even though delay in time.
0: Alexandra, you're talking about a new tribunal. Why is the International Criminal Court not sufficient in the case of Ukraine?
3: International Criminal Court have no jurisdiction over such kinds of crimes as aggression. Is- and this is a problem. We, we need special tribunal on aggression because there is no court in the world which can prosecute Putin and
0: his surrounding for this international crime. You join the cries of many of your fellow Ukrainians who have told me, without weapons, we can't have peace. How can a human rights lawyer and a Nobel Peace Prize recipient call for more weapons? It's something which I'm not expected before the large-scale
3: invasion started, and I found myself in a very difficult situation that I have no legal instrument how to stop Russian atrocities. And it's very visible, not only for me as a human rights lawyer. Each people in the world will clearly see that the whole UN system couldn't stop forcible deportations, forcible mobilizations, tortures, murders, abductions deliberate destruction of residential buildings, churches, hospitals, or closed or pushing to close the filtration camp system, which Russian used to humiliate and legally deprive Ukrainians from liberty. But the goal is not only to prosecute and investigate war crimes, which have already been committed. The goal is much more ambitious. We have to prevent new war crimes to emerge. We have to stop this human suffering. Millions of people are suffering. And now we need weapons to be able to defend our country, our people, our democratic choice, and our freedom.
0: Your initiative has documented more than 24,000 alleged war crimes in Ukraine so far. Have you been shocked by the scope of these offenses? It's very difficult
3: because when we speak about war crimes, we speak not just about uh, documentation of violation of some Geneva and Hague conventions. When you work on the ground, you understand very clearly that we are documenting human pain and human suffering. And when we speak about a huge scale, we speak about enormous amount of human pain.
0: And I I can just tell from talking to you that you've been deeply touched by the horrors that have happened in your country. Can you talk a little bit about the work that goes into documenting each of these crimes? In order to do it effectively, we
3: united our efforts with dozens of organizations, mostly regional ones, and we built a Ukrainian network of documentators, which is called Tribunal for Putin Initiative. We set... This the one common methodology, and we use different methods of documentation. We analyze open sources with uh, order verification, even truth information or not. We send mobile groups to work on deliberated areas. If something happened, our documentators are able very quickly to be on a place and to make their own photos, videos, their own descriptions of what happened. We gather a testimonies of victims and witnesses of the war crimes. We use not only testimonies. Or when something happened and we can't reach the people, but we can document it, we also do it. For example, when Russian rockets hit residential buildings and their house was destroyed, and we know that there are some victims, but we can't reach them or their relatives, we also put this information in the database in order to be able further to provide for each cases which we documented the proper investigation is not our task. That's why we open our database to national investigation bodies. We closely work with International Criminal Court. And that's why we start very publicly to raise awareness that we need assistance in order to provide justice. It needs enormous amount of people and institutional capacity, which means for us that it's something which couldn't be left on the responsibility of the national system of Ukraine. We need to find a way how to involve international element on the level of national investigation and national justice.
0: What do you need to get this job done?
3: First of all, we need strategy. We have to develop complex justice strategy with different elements, which is exist already and which have to be created, and the link between all these elements. It's very visible for us who work on the ground that without these systems, we will not be able to provide justice for victims of this war. I saw that in the first months of a large-scale invasion, When we speak about assistance, our international community sent to work with us a lot of qualified consultants. But I always use this example. When you have a car without petrol, you can hire the best driver in the world, but this car will not move. And a lot of things which has to be done are not taking place, not because Ukrainians don't know about it but because we lack of qualified working hands on the ground. For example, in Kharkiv region, now my colleague, journalist, who is editor of some popular internet media, had to be a volunteer to identify dead people, because it was too, too less qualified people who can do it. Yes, my colleague, this journalist, hadn't also be prepared for such type of job. But somebody has to do it, and
0: he volunteer. It's not only difficult; it's extremely emotional. Is it not?
3: Sure, everything which is going is extremely emotional, and I can understand that. Sometimes it's even difficult to believe that it's taking place in reality, even for us who live in this reality. What I can say about people who live in peace in well-developed democracies and start to read about torture camps, or about mass graves, or about this cruelty when Russian soldiers killed a 40-year-old boy who just played with his ball in the yard. It's difficult to imagine how people can do it, but unfortunately, this horror is reality. I have never imagined myself to do this work because I have a huge empathy to people. But the war started and I have no other choice. Like when you face with challenges, you have to respond. And we can't choose the country in which we are born or the time in which we are born, but we always have a right to choose to be active for a person and to respond to the challenges or to be passive and just indifferent. We have to invent a system which are able to protect people against autocracies and wars. And I strongly believe that people are not numbers. We have to provide justice for each person. If you committed violence against people, such level that it's recognized as international crimes, this violence will be investigated their perpetrators will be punished, and victims will get satisfaction.
0: Alexandra, when you accepted the Nobel Peace Prize, you said in your speech that this war is not between two states. It's actually a war of two systems, authoritarianism and democracy. What does that idea of the two systems mean for Ukrainians right now?
3: It's something for which we are fighting for. It's our values and values is so like a principle which determine your behavior not when everything is easy but when you're going through dramatic times. So it's real values for Ukrainians because in this fight for freedom and democracy, we pay the highest price we pay our life. When I spoke with my colleagues, Russian human rights defenders with whom we work very closely and who helped us to release Ukrainian political prisoners in Russia or to make their detention more human, I asked them, and how we can help you because you are persecuted by regime, you are labelled as foreign agent, you are faced with the real threats by yourself. And they always answered, if you want to help us, please be successful. Have we left anything out of this conversation
0: that you want to mention?
3: I always asked her about what kinds of story impressed you the most, and I can't answer because, first, we have hundreds of thousands of stories. But I always can tell stories which I remember for that concrete moment. And one story is a story of a family from Kiev region. Their mother was dead in the basement because she can't stand this horror, and her heart stopped, and several small kids left alone, and their neighbors who was in the same basement started to take care of these kids. And when Keith region were liberated, journalists spoke with his neighbors and make the photo, the grave of their mothers and these kids as well. But what's break my heart the son he told that mommy came to to him during the night when he slept and asked him to provide food and and she came to the grave with a food to his mom and left it
0: and when i saw this photo i was still You're doing such extraordinary work under such excruciating circumstances. How are you doing this? We have no other choice. It's dramatic times. It's
3: a very tragic times. No one in Ukraine won this war. It wasn't our choice. Russia decided to restore, even forcibly, their empire. Russia decided to possibly erose Ukrainian identity. We have no other choice if we stop fighting. There will be no more us.
0: Well, you're extraordinarily brave. Alexandra, what is your greatest hope for the future of Ukraine? To achieve victory. And
3: victory for Ukraine is not just to repeal Putin's troops from Ukraine and liberate people in occupied areas, including Crimea. Victory for Ukraine is to succeed in democratic transformation. It means that we have to build a society where the rights of everybody are protected. Government is accountable, judiciary is independent, and police serve people. Maybe I will put it like this. I wish to live in Ukraine, where the work of Center for Civil Liberties in our present form are not being needed anymore.
0: Oleksandr Matichuk, Ukraine's Nobel Peace Prize winner from 2022, thank you so much for talking to us today. In 2021, Transparency International ranked Ukraine the second most corrupt country in Europe, behind only Russia. Since then, it's been up to one man, Oleksandr Novikov, the chairman of the National Agency for Corruption Prevention, to lead Ukraine's fight back. A former public prosecutor, Alex works closely with the consortium through the International Foundation for Electoral Systems. He is laser-focused on achieving this pivotal mandate from his post in President Zelensky's cabinet. He says war isn't an excuse. In fact, he and his staff survived the first three months of Russia's attacks in a bomb shelter under their offices in Kyiv.
4: Ukraine's success uh, in this war depends on the effective and sustainable functioning of our democratic institutions, including those promoting public integrity and fighting against corruption. For us, it's the same thing. At the beginning of this war, we all saw the Russian army's corruption. In Ukraine, the situation was radically different. Since uh, we have an effective anti-corruption system, however, this is the space for further improvement. No doubt, uh, what our soldiers are doing in the front line is genuine heroism. No one globally expected Ukraine to resist, but we did not just resign. We have already been actively liberating our people and lands occupied by Russia. We are also grateful to all our international partners, of course. your supports a significant contribution to global freedom, democracy, and security. We believe that one of the key uh, reasons Western society supports Ukraine is that Ukraine has proven to be a sustainable democracy and uh, an agent state. It would be a dramatic mistake uh, to treat Ukraine as a country like Afghanistan. Reasonably, Ukraine's condition is much more similar to that of Croatia or Slovenia. Therefore, fast, flexible, and inclusive support should address four key challenges Ukraine is facing right now.
0: Why is the war not an excuse?
4: Because uh, the integrity is key answer for our victory. Because our military system and our army have high level of integrity, we mm-hmm. have a better conditions to beat Russians on the battlefields. Integrity is a military issue because uh, Russia u- are using uh, narratives uh, of failed state or corrupted state to undermine the support of Ukraine uh, in uh, Western societies and between, uh, Western governments, but it's not true. In fact, the opposite is true, correct? Yes, of course. But the level of understanding how important is corruption for Ukraine is, uh, 70%. So why is this, uh, feeling is 70% when the corruption is 15% it, because of, uh, Russian military operations in the sphere of communications, in the sphere of media.
0: Your office is new. The Corruption and Prevention Agency is a relatively new office. Can you explain what happened in the wake of the Euromaidan revolution?
4: All Ukrainian society chose its path to the European Union in 2013, during the Revolution of Dignity. Russia tried to impose its values uh, on us through its puppets in our government, but our people are different. We are entirely different from the Russians. After the beating of students by security forces on Maidan, the Ukrainian people came to the streets. At that time, I was working in the prosecution office, but I could not sit back and watch what is happening. So I also went to the Maidan together with my family. We didn't want to live in dictatorship and corruption. We didn't want to do rapprochement with Russia. We fought for the values of individual freedom and democracy. Ukrainian society demanded reforms and fight against corruption, European European Atlantic integration. And it is the reason why Russia tried to occupy Ukraine.
0: In 2020, and you talked about this just a little bit, there was a constitutional crisis and a lot of the anti-corruption reform that had been put into place before then was declared unconstitutional. What happened? And can you talk a little bit about what President Zelensky's response was to that?
4: October 27, uh, 2022, marked two years since this notorious decision of the Constitutional Court of Ukraine was made. It affected Ukraine's e-declaration system, blocked the work of NACP for three months, and threatened the entire anti-corruption infrastructure. October 27 will forever go down in our modern history as a Black Day, not only for the NACP, NACP, but also for Ukrainian statehood itself. It was a disaster from the perspective of stability and security of the state. Because corruption is one of the biggest internal threats to our state, and it was a day when citizens might lose and lost control over the public service and the accountability. And the parliament resolved the problem in a constitutional way, and the president supported and promulgated the parliament's decision. This case is one of the good examples of how the democratic institutions in Ukraine work for the public good.
0: President Zelensky has been very public about anti corruption activity
4: in Ukraine. Yes, absolutely correct. And the president's agenda is anti corruption agenda. That is why we are so effective even in this wartime, because we increase our level of integrity for the last three years. Our parliament voted five months ago uh, the second anti corruption strategy in the history of Ukraine. And our government. We'll sign the state anti-corruption plan of the implementation of this strategy until the end of the December. And it's a very important thing for our way to the culture of integrity.
0: In some of your public speaking engagements, you've talked about new digital tools Ukraine has introduced to combat corruption. Can you share a little bit about what you're using and why it's become effective?
4: For today, Ukraine is the champion in IT tools of anti-corruption. In Ukraine, we have a special tool for each article of United Nations Convention Against Corruption, and we are the only one country in the world that has such big success in this path. The NCP is not only a central executive body with a special status responsible for development of corruption policy and preventing corruption in Ukraine, the NCP aims to be a change leader and inspires other government agencies to build effective and innovative public service institutions. One strategic task on this path is digital transformation inside NACP. The NACP IT infrastructure includes many products as the following: E-Register of Declarations. The NACP holds the world's largest digital database of civil servants' assets. It is the Register of Declarations that was developed with the support of UNDP. The Register is quite a unique tool. Every year, up to one million officials submit their declarations to the EG- e- Register. Each of these documents is available to the public. Each is also verified automatically, showing if the public official stated accurate information on their assets. Second, Register of Political Party reports polyd- data. In 2020, since to cooperation with the International Foundation for Electoral Systems, IFAS, and the USAID, the NACP launched the Data, the Register, Simplify the reporting process for political parties and provides better access for citizens to the financial data of political parties operating in Ukraine. And this register is most modern in the world. Unfortunately, since the beginning of the war, public access to the most of our IT products has been restricted for security reasons, as you understand. In addition to our normal IT tools, the War and sanction Portal was created with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The War and Sanctions Database. Is the most significant global database on Russian PEPs and sanctions imposed on Russian individuals and companies following the Russian invasion of Ukraine. The database was developed to provide Ukraine's allies and partners abroad with valuable insights and leads on sanction targets. So
0: you're doing all this work in the middle of a war.
4: Yes, and I is very motivated to move to victory as quick as possible. The hardest part of my job is to create conditions for uh, my employers because uh, we have a problem with electricity, we have a problems uh, with water, we have a problems with logistics. And the second biggest issue is to motivate my team uh, work 24 hours and seven days a week. I would imagine your team has become very close. Of course. More close than every time before. So what is the best part? We are the only one government body in Ukraine that uh, have ERP system, Enterprise Resource Planning System, and we can uh, sign the documents or have discussion or all our working issues online. And I can sign the letter even to the Prime Minister or President from any place in the world. So we have all resources to be resilient and to work from any place in the world.
0: So maybe the best part of your job has been to be so resilient and resourceful in this terrible environment. We understand
4: that as a government body, we in this twenty-first century is like IT company and have to work and to change very quick.
0: What role will you play, or your team will play in the reconstruction?
4: The role of an SCP in rebuilding Ukraine is to ensure the appropriate functioning of the institutional arrangements aimed at integrity and minimization of corruption and risks. This may include identifying corruption, risk, in reconstruction related areas, conducting the anti-corruption expertise of draft laws aimed at regulating and reconstruction process, doing due diligence and verifying the corruption management systems of companies seeking contracts to implement reconstruction related projects. We have already analyzed the Draft National Recovery Plan and provided comprehensive suggestions. On minimizing corruption risks when implementing it. In these activities, we coordinate our work with civil society, particularly with RISE, the coalition of about two dozen NGOs working in public procurement and anti-corruption.
0: What is it like for you, personally, to have this job and to be doing this work now?
4: Only if we will have these risk management systems here in Ukraine, we will have enough resources for our quick victory. So, our role is very important. And that is why we cannot stop even for one hour. Ukrainians always live between East and West. So, to be alive, we have to be brave and we have to build networks very quick. And now, we Feel us as a part of free world, and that is why we have no other answers on the issue of this war. Only one answer victory, freedom, and we have enough bravery and enough networks, networking skills to uh, have this victory. Excellent. Ukraine has proven that it is an integral part of the democratic world. Despite the war and Russians' desire to destroy our country and democracy, Ukraine continues its public integrity and anti-corruption work, taking new and completing initial steps. And that is why we will win this war.
0: Alexander Alex Navikov, Ukraine's National Agency on Corruption Prevention Chairman. Thank you so much for joining us today.
4: Thank you for your time and for this interview.
0: polling shows that Ukrainians identify tackling corruption alongside restoring the country's territorial integrity as their top two priorities. And as Alex makes it clear, continued anti-corruption reform is crucial to Ukraine's future prosperity and political integrity. Don't forget to check the show notes for the links to the study and other resources. This marks the end of Democracy, the podcast, Defending Democracy, Ukraine. I hope this limited series has taken you behind the headlines and given you a deeper understanding of what's at risk in Eastern Europe. For as you now know, this is not the story of two states, but is in fact a war of two systems, authoritarianism versus democracy, and a war freedom can't afford to lose. Ahead in the next episode, Season 2 continues. We'll hear what it takes to cement progress in the world's democratic bright spots and what we can learn from their triumphs over tyranny. Democracy, the podcast, is brought to you by the Consortium for Elections and Political Process Strengthening through the Democratic Elections Political Processes Cooperative Agreement, and is made possible by the generous support of the American people through the United States Agency for International Development. Opinions expressed here are those of the host and the guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of USAID or the United States government. This podcast is produced by Evo Terra and Sam Walker of Simpler Media Productions. For more information on Democracy the Podcast and to access the complete archives, please visit seps.org